my aspiration is we get this program to the point that, you know, we're able to set up a way to rebuild all of the low-income housing in New York City so that it becomes an energy positive. Welcome to Positive. Find us on Twitter at P-O-S-I, the number two I-V-E. This bi-weekly podcast is for active investors and founders just like you, focused on venture-scale positive impacts. I'm your host, Zach Len, an angel investor in the private capital markets here in sunny SoCal. Today's guest is Jackie Ross Amabile, Managing Director at Nextcore, headquartered in Rochester. The episode will include three sections. First, mapping backwards, next, robust teams, and last, climate tech at, at Nextcore. Welcome to the show, Jackie. Hi, Zeka. Thank you so much for having me um, and for uh, introducing me to your listeners. Really excited to be here. The pleasure is all mine. And, you know, I just want to give a shout out. Um, your former co-founder at Revelar, I know we'll discuss that, that company. Andrea Perdomo was on episode 14, uh, who you introduced. And at the time you were working, uh, I believe, as a co-author with Brad Feld uh, at Techstars on the new book. How did that go? Um, it was great. I, I, I was asked to be a contributor on uh, diversity and community programs. Um, and was just really honored to to be asked and to to get to share uh, my experiences and perspective. Um, and, and so was really grateful for that opportunity. And, and yeah, my co-founder, Andrea, as you all you know, probably heard in, in that episode, is just marvelous. And so to today, she's my best friend. That's wonderful. I'm sure she'll appreciate hearing that. And there have been so many positive comments and feedback about her episode as well. I definitely urge listeners to listen to both. And I have to say, I wish I kind of had you both on the same show, but I knew your time and you were busy at the time. Can you share more about what you're currently working on briefly before we break out into the sections? Absolutely. Um, I'm the managing director of a new program called Venture for Climate Tech. Uh, we're actually launching our, our new website this uh, upcoming uh, Tuesday. So really excited for it. And, and what we are is a global nonprofit Venture Studio plus Accelerator Program, helping launch climate tech companies. Our goal is to help New York State reach its ambitious uh, carbon reduction goals uh, by 2030. And so we are um, the very top of the funnel trying to help uh, get these incredible innovations, have strong teams around them and get launched so that we can start to make the, the changes to our systems that we need to make in order to uh, avert the climate crisis. You said 2030 with the New York has a set of goals. Can you maybe share more about that? Absolutely. Um, in 2019, New York State passed the Com Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which is some of the most uh, progressive and ambitious, uh, essentially Green New Deal uh, that a state has passed. And so um, under Governor Cuomo's leadership, you know, we are we're really pushing to make New York State fully sustainable and uh, and shifting so that we can stop being um, you know, such a such a major polluter. Um, so when you think about every every building in New York, our all our streets, all the transportation, um, a lot of this has to be converted um, and uh, new systems put in place. And and we're really excited to be at the forefront helping to make those transitions. Um, and I'm also really proud to say that um, uh, our work has to also make sure that it serves the most vulnerable communities um, within New York State. And so while our program recruits and helps launch companies globally. Um, it's always keeping a lens on, you know, how can these technologies perhaps one day uh, support New York State's goals? I love the uh, the social and sustainable overlap. I think that's just great to hear that New York is really taking um, a very innovative and new approach to to uh, addressing the interplay there. I think it's it's wonderful. So let's let's move right into uh, mapping backwards for the first section. 
How did you start in the social impact journey? So my first job out of college, um, while I had already started Revelar, uh, my first official job was uh, with Teach for America. Uh, you know, when you talk about backwards planning, uh, that is all teachers do. Um, and it was incredible to me how that job had so many transferable skill sets to being a, the CEO of a startup and, and now the managing director of a climate tech program. Before mapping backwards, maybe you can unpack that a bit just so I can understand. Absolutely. Um, so when you think mapping backwards or, or backwards planning, um, or in business, right? It's uh, strategic planning. Uh, what, what all these you know words mean essentially is that you say, "Hey, okay, um, today is today. In a year from now, I want to be here." And then you break it down month by month, week by week. What is it going to take if I want to get to this goal in a year? What are the steps that I'm going to have to take? Um, so it's it's looking forward as to where you want to go. Um, so from a teacher standpoint, that's like, "Hey, my students." Can They know their ABCs, but I need them to be able to write full sentences So by the end of the year. So I'm going to backwards plan the skill sets they have to gain in order to get to that final knowledge milestone by the end of the year. Um, in a business, that means figuring out you know, what, uh, what your channel strategy or go-to-market strategy will be and how, what activities you have to accomplish in order to get to that product launch or get to that, that next business milestone. Um, and so really it's the ability to, to look forward and think through, huh, what is it going to take to, to get to that place? That's a wonderful way to, to explain it. Thank you for that. Can you tell us more about um, your learnings as CEO of Revelar? Uh, my learnings as CEO of Revelar were many. Um, <laughs> what do we I had, How many uh, hours do we have? <laughs> yeah, right. That's always, I'm like, well, it depends. <laughs> you want to hear about my mistakes in my channel strategy, my mistakes in team? Well, let's start with all the funny learnings because I know you like humor. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Um, I always say that humor is the, the best way to get a thought across when you have to sometimes help gently correct a behavior. I love that. The biggest one I probably learned, and, and this is also a testament to um, my co-founder, is, you know, early on, I, you know, I've always said I'm a very polite rebel, but a rebel nonetheless. And so I was really anti-hierarchy, anti-titles. I was like, we're all working together, like flat organization. Right. Well, what's the term for that flat organization? They have, there's some sort of selective term for it in Silicon Valley. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, but either way, it was a disaster in the making. And I've been in one of those organizations. I can yeah. attest. I, I do know how. I do know how that goes. And so, yeah. So while it came with the you know the good intentions of mutual respect for each other's work, what it really resulted in was was a lot of confusion and the inability to grow the organization in a healthy way. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, I I really believe in this mantra, and it's a mantra that I'm carrying with me in, in my in my job now is. The best founders don't build companies, they build teams that build companies. Um, and it's about knowing not just the, the, the building the teams, but knowing what team you need at what stage of that business. And that means that you understand your strategy deeply and, and your path forward deeply enough to understand who you need to hire and why, um, but also what is that timing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I made a lot of mistakes um, when it came to, to building teams. Um, and I did a lot of things right too, but you know, you tend to only remember the, those mistakes. And so I think um, after we first closed our first three million, um, I'll never forget when my, you know, uh, co-founder and then CFO came up to me and were like, you know, Jackie, it's been, you know, really cute that you've been letting everybody kind of pick their own titles. But um, <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. You know, we're a real company now. And, uh you know, we, we need to make sure that these titles allow for growth. And that's the first time I heard the term organizational structure. 
And I, when I tell you that that kept me up for, for weeks, it does. And now it's my favorite thing to do with founders. I love supporting them thinking through, I love organizational structure strategy because really it's, it's helping set up your team for success. And which is what was always my goal. A lot of it is it's very human and it's needing to understand what are your strengths and weaknesses and how are you going to hire around that? Like no one person can be great at every one thing. So, you know, I think about, you know, uh, for example, with, with technical, right? If I had spent all the time to try to figure out how to build that technology myself, I never would have made it to the market. Um, instead, I, I trusted and hired somebody who had an opposite skill set of mine and brought them on through through a form of, of mutual respect. Um, but it's uh, in my space. A lot of time I meet with founders who are deep PhDs and and deep scientists, and they're absolutely brilliant. And they get so frustrated because they're like, Jackie, I don't understand. Like, why are VCs saying we look like a science project? And I was like, well, when you look at your org structure, you haven't hired a single salesperson. You don't exactly scream, I care about revenue. <laughs> Let's let's take one step back and kind of can you get give an overview of kind of what the mission of the company was and also kind of um, what the product was. Um, so uh, my company Revelar uh, was a tiny wearable safety device that at the touch of a button could send for help, and our mission was to keep your loved ones safe. Um, it was inspired. Uh, Revelar actually means to take flight again in Spanish, and is an ode to survivors of sexual violence, like my little sister, that inspired the technology. Um, so we we built essentially the the modern, more beautiful life alert so that people could feel empowered and safe uh, wherever they lived and wherever they were and that they could easily uh, reach out to their loved ones in time of an, a true emergency. Wonderful. Yes, that, that gives a great context. And I apologize for kind of steering us back. You were on a train of thought about hiring people with right. PhDs and, and sort of um, mutual respect. And it, I think it, kind of pointing to intellectual diversity. Um, so can you maybe expand on um, how that helped you in structuring the business? Absolutely. You know, when I think about, well, I mean, at that point, right, I'm, I think my biggest strengths were that I knew who was going to use our product and why, right? Like I had a really strong vision for the product and a strong st strategic instinct for the business. Um, but I had never entered retail. You know, I had never heard the term peg velocity, which is how quickly is your product getting purchased within that retailer? Um, and so I had to really quickly identify things I didn't know and then recruit talent around my gaps, which is really scary for a founder. Founders, and, and understandably so, it's scary to hire somebody that you're having to trust, know something you know you don't know. And it's, it's a, it, it requires that you, you have a lot of faith and a lot of trust, um, and you put a lot of hope in, in that hire um, and that it'll work out. And so for me, you know, a clear example of that would be my CTO, right? My CTO had 25 years of supply chain and manufacturing experience. I was his daughter's age. Um, and we're still best friends because there was just this deep mutual respect for each other's strengths. And, um, he continues to, to be a mentor in my program today. And so I find that, um, when you're able to be honest about your weaknesses, you can get really amazing strategic value in, in how you grow your business. Um, and that feels really counterintuitive, but at the end of the day, you know, businesses are built by people. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, and I, I kind of wonder um, back to the flat, uh, back to the flat organization structure you had when you initially started. How um, getting to know people's strengths and weaknesses can happen in an environment where there's a very strict hierarchy, for example, where maybe managers don't know people too well before they they hire and things like that. I mean, I wonder how you could. Um, 
sort of mitigate that if, if you wanted to uh, go from that flat structure to an organizational structure? I actually found it wasn't that hard to make the switch from a flat to a hierarchical structure. My team was craving it. Um, just like, you know, how my students craved structure in a classroom. You know, they didn't want me to show up and kind of wing it. They wanted me to come ready with a cool lesson and like prepare to share knowledge. Um, and I find that it's the same with the team, right? Like people, um, and I know I do, right? Like uh, uh, people that are amazing operators and managers, like they can change your life because they they get you excited about the work. They they set you up for success. They have your back and things and yeah. you have their back. And um, But that, you know, that it takes time to, to build those relationships and, and get to that point with people. Of course, I agree. I fully agree. And um, what about responsibility? Is is that something that plays into why flat organizations don't necessarily work in your mind? Like, how does uh, uh, how does responsibility and credit for responsibility get sort of allocated when when there isn't necessarily a boss telling you know this is the structure kind of without the org structure? Does that make sense? I almost think that the flat structure is less of there are some companies that pull off the flat structure in really interesting ways. Um, I forget the name of the company who does it, but everybody is an associate. Zappos did, I believe, or something. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I've definitely seen successful cases. I think it depends on the the kind of company you're building and also your your knowledge and how to support those systems. And in my, my guess is that would require really careful recruiting of hires to make sure that they could function within that world. Um, because I think that, you know, like I think of, you know, I, I always use this analogy with teams that you're hiring for, right? You, you don't want an all all-star team. There's a reason that all all-stars don't actually make the best sports teams, right? They don't know, how, you know, it, you need that mixed balanced team for that team to succeed. You need somebody that will pass the ball to the Jordans of the world and be proud to do so, um, so that they can get that, that dunk. Right. And so, um, any team, you need those people that are that are willing to like stick around and build. You need those. Um, and this book, Radical Candor, describes it really well. But it's knowing your rock stars from your superstars. Like who's going to be there long term and 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 dig in versus who's going to blow your mind in a year or two, but then they're going to need to move on because that's just their nature. And so I think it's also, um, yeah, knowing when and where to place people, which comes back to team and timing. Interesting. And how important do you think ego is in hiring good managers? Something that I, um, we've, I've seen done in the past and I really liked is I had a manager that actually asked people, how do you like to be shown thanks? Um, because I think, you know, we often think, oh, this person will like this because I would like this. Um, but that's not necessarily true. Like everybody has their own, you know, there's that book, Love Languages, but people receive gratitude and thanks in, in different ways. Um, like I'm one where I want people uh, to spend time with me. Like if you really want to show me you care, sh uh, spend some time t chatting with me. Um, quality time. Um, and some people just need to hear a thank you. I don't really ever need to hear a thank you, I've learned. <laughs> I've, <I'm laughs> quality time. Exactly. And, and they don't need gifts. They just need a thank you. And so for those people, I make sure to always say thank you because I know that that for them matters. Um, and, you know, for others, it's acts of service and, and, and things like that. So um, I think it's, it comes back to taking the time to understand um, what your team's needs are on an individual basis. And there's also a big difference from when you get to build your team versus when you inherit a team. Um, I think there's a lot of challenges to inheriting a team versus building your own. They each have their own pros and cons. But, um, you know, when you're stepping into a manager role with a team that's been there, 
maybe they love their old manager and don't know why that manager is no longer there, you know? Um, or they've had bubbling frustrations. And so you show up and these people are already upset because they've been waiting. And so, um, you know, it, it, it all has its unique intrinsic challenges, but um, I always just try to uh, put myself in their shoes. And I, I find that that helps. Well, Jackie, I think you did a great job of kind of transitioning into the, us into the robust team section. Um, I want to kind of tie into your experience as a teacher, as a leader, and how that helped you as you transitioned into Techstars and kind of what you were working on with Techstars. Uh, so in my time teaching, um, I learned, I think, one of the most valuable human lessons, um, and that is that everybody is weird and awkward. Um, there are no exceptions. Like, wait, 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 not me, not me. Everybody, <laughs> everybody, no, I know. Um, and, um, you know, I think as a teacher, you see these kids and you're like, wow, like in fifth grade, I would have thought this kid was impervious, you know, to, to whatever it is, the, um, the tough, kid, the tough or kid or the cool kid and, or the nerd. And like, they all had their own moments, right. Of just being so purely human. And, uh, when you apply that to adults, right. Really adults are just tall kids. Um, oh, and so, um, or in my case, not that tall. <laughs> my students were taller than me half well, the time. Um, oh. <laughs> which is interesting for power dynamics, but, uh, it, uh, oh, okay. um, you know, it, it was, um, this realization that like, if you give people a little time or even chance to like explain themselves, sometimes comments just come out wrong. And so as I started to enter the tech world, right, like it, it, people were like, oh, it's very male dominated, some of the comments. And I was like, yes. But, you know, what I found was that, you know, when you're trying to communicate across cultures, which has been 99% of my life, um, I've always lived in a culture that was not my own. Um, and that's a really weird thing to say, but I'm, I'm what you would call a third culture kid. Um, wow, I le- I've never heard that term. Uh, I, I hadn't until somebody was like, oh, you're a third culture kid like me. And I was like, what is that? Um, and essentially, it's the um, people that were raised within a specific culture, like I was the Latin culture, but not within a Latin community. And I constantly moved. Um, and so it's always been my job. I've always been the new kid. I've always had to introduce myself and build bridges. And at first, it's awkward because when you enter a new community, people are like, oh, you're strange. You're different. And I, there's a cultural norm mm -hmm. and it's a vocabulary. I had that same culture shock when I moved to New York, right? Like sometimes people would say things to me and I was like, what did you say? Like, are we both speaking English, (laughs) you know? And so, (laughs) um, but it was a way of speaking and you, you get used to the flows. And so I find that I code switch all day, every day. Um, yes. And that helps me as I've entered different industries and different teams um, but it takes a lot of listening and, and getting to know people to to be able to make that leap. Yeah, you and Andrea both brought up code switching um, in this, now what we're recording and in the episode she, she, she was on. Um, it's such an interesting topic, the idea of code switching. It seems like there's the, the cultural learning aspect, there's kind of the personal identity aspect, the, the sort of uh, need to fit in, the need to feel belong, like a sense of belonging, for example. Yeah, or just a way of, you know, help, you know, uh, and I, you know, I think we've talked about this, like I, you know, everybody has their own biases. I am not somehow immune to, to biases. Right. Um, I also, the human condition. Yeah. And so it's, I see code switching as, as, as a gift I try to give, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to do my best to communicate on your, in your level or, or zone so that we can, um, because that's the point of language is to communicate. So sometimes people are like, oh, you didn't say that perfectly or that didn't come out perfectly. I'm like, but did you understand me? 
<laughs> you know, that's what matters. Exactly. And to, to hone one's communication is an, is kind of an act, an act of empathy to some degree. You're, you're trying to extend understanding and appreciation yeah. for each other by... And all animals that's do That's why it. I like podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Oh. With, with body language, for example, or it's like, for example, like I know with... Um, I just watched uh, the Call of the Wild with my wife last night. It was really fun. There was this animated dog in the film and all of the the wolf-like characteristics of the dogs, how they communicated in the pack were quite interesting. I, <laughs> I, I think that's kind of what you're suggesting. Yeah. All animals have kind of a communication. Or even like, you know, I have pet cats and I learned that cats don't meow at each other. They meow at humans to imitate us. That's them literally trying to speak like us. They don't meow at each other. Amazing. And when I learned that, I was like, wait, you would never meow if, if I, you were not exposed to me on a daily basis. That's wild, right? So like, it seems like a funny, um, but you know, so many of these they're systems, code they're code switching. They're like, well, I'm going to make sounds too and see if this works. <laughs> That's really funny. I've never heard of that before. I have, I have a friend, not to go too yeah. obscure, but I have a friend, a friend who's a data scientist and a former founder he's working on his his real like life um goal is to kind of decode how dolphins communicate to, to each other type of thing. oh this is so cool i've heard about this with whales and to help map the oceans and so yeah i think you know um i wouldn't be surprised if one day we you know we do figure out how to better communicate just like we have across across other cultures um i think all human all life is more uh, is more connected. I mean, that's clearly why I'm in the climate tech space, right? I'm like, that's like my hippie side coming out. I'm like, we're all connected. <laughs> we're all yeah, no need to discredit the hippies. They 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 learned a lot through the process. Um, yes, let me let me talk about um, your impact focus at TechStars. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the experience and and um, what was that like? Absolutely. Um, it was really incredible. I mean, TechStars had done so much for me as a founder, right? But um. When I got to work there, I managed the Americas for their community program, so from Canada through Argentina, and I really got to dive deep into innovation ecosystems across the region and also learn from my peers across the globe what, what challenges entrepreneurs face there. Um, and so I learned things that I never thought about before, like in certain countries, you can't declare bankruptcy. Um, and that's a problem. That's a block to, to entrepreneurship. If you can't declare bankruptcy, you have to be allowed to legally fail for investment to work. Um, and so um, and so, how limiting to an ecosystem, or it costs a lot of money to, to uh, incorporate a company in some countries, like as much right. as, as $100,000. And so right? you have this oh massive, yeah, so you have this massive barrier to entrepreneurship yet again. Um, and so the policies, um, and this is true, I think of any progress or any positive impact. Um, you know, I'd come from the political world and understood how policies impact things. But at Techstars, I started to see on a deep level how that impacts entrepreneurship. Um, and to tie that to like, for example, my current work, right? We just talked about the policy that passed in New York. So what did that policy do? That policy created a clear market for climate tech in New York state, right? So now there is a market for a technology that is very needed because the policies are helping that impact flourish. Um, and so across all aspects of my, my career, whether it's education or politics or, um, you know, general entrepreneurship or climate tech, um, policy matters. Um, and so I find that I'm, I, I have to say very politically engaged because it, it impacts my ability to have an impact and, and help founders. So moving into section three, climate 
at NextCorp. Uh, you you mentioned a film in our uh, pre-show. You mentioned The Age of Consequences. Would you be willing to kind of share that film and what it did to inspire you for, for climate tech specifically? Absolutely. Um, my original inspiration for, for getting into climate tech was... Um, and let me take this step back so that I can come back to that is, you know, as you know, Revelar was me trying to keep my loved ones safe. And the research showed that if I really wanted to end violence, um, you had to solve for the market failures and resource allocation, aka the climate crisis, because the collapse of ecosystems would be so destabilizing um, that we wouldn't be able to keep our communities safe. We're going to have a flood of climate refugees, which we've already seen. And I think a lot of people didn't know how to tie in this how these these negative systems are are literally leading to the destabilization of whole countries, if not whole continents. Um, and uh, in a, when I first discovered this information, it felt so revolutionary to me, um, and so, which was why I was excited when I found that uh, documentary, The Age of Consequences, um, because it talks about, it's an Emmy-nominated um, documentary that connects the climate crisis to our national security. And it talks about why the our, you know the U.S. military has declared the climate crisis a national security issue, um, because it is. And this planet is built to sustain us all, but we have to we have to you know treasure and respect and protect these the the natural systems and work within them. Um, and so uh, I realized that if I wanted to keep my community safe, I was going to have to tackle this massively systemic underlying issue of market failures in resource allocation first, and that we were going to have to get better um, and more efficient with with how we disperse energy and how we build things and how we consume things. Um, and, you know, to take that one step further, yes, consumers are changing the narrative and they're starting to make demands. But, you know, it's also mind-blowing to think that 100 corporations are responsible for about 70% of the, the emission issues. You know, and so um, that's also where policy comes back into play. You know, like how do we um, hold people accountable? Because I, you know, I'm a true believer in 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 capitalism, but it, it can't be at the expense of you know the world security. <laughs> um, we all have to drink clean water. We all need clean air. Um, these are these are basic human things that we need to access to, to have a decent chance at a quality of life. And, um, I think that that documentary just does, it's just so powerful and, um, and hones in on that. And, and there's a lot of incredible documentaries in the space that have, have really blown my mind. Um, but I always come back to that one. Can you think, can you think of a couple actually, I'd like to watch them cause I like this recommendation. Um, oh shoot. I'm the worst when I get put on the spot for names. Um, yeah. But I'm excited to see the Greta one because, and I'll just say this, the, the Greta one, because she is proof of this book called The Tipping Point, how small things add up. Um, and, you know, if anybody ever listening to this feels powerless, um, don't. You never know the butterfly effect of your actions. Um, and this book is, it just captures it in such a beautiful way. And so just as we can have these unattended negative consequences, right? Like nobody developed plastic thinking I'm going to ruin the world. <laughs> People develop plastic thinking I'm going to make somebody's life easier. Um, you know, they, but we just didn't understand the consequences and now we've become so entrenched. And so, um, I think the, the book tip, the tipping point and uh, the Greta documentary are two things that I'm, um, concepts that go hand in hand. Yeah, and um, not to play devil's advocate, but I would also, I would also suggest um, 
uh, checking out the book. I'm going to, I haven't read it, but Bjorn Lomborg's new, new book on sort of some, some of the, you know, the counter uh, narratives to the climate change, um, uh, to the climate change initiatives. Uh, I know Bjorn, Bjorn Lomborg has been around for a long time and sometimes he gets some flack, but I like that he takes a statistical data-driven approach to some of the discussions. Uh, I think just to kind of balance out some of the narratives, it helps. And that's fair. Um, you know, I, um, I I think that any industry has its pros and cons, right? We know something needs to change. We know something needs to shift, but we need to do it with integrity. Um, that's the, you know, and so, you know, for example, I was reading about, you know, uh, some of the clean energy products and uh, programs in Latin America that are now leading to the displacement of natives and uh, if not murder because they're trying to block certain hydroelectric dams and things like that from ruining their communities. And so it's like, yes, we need to apply these technologies, but we need to apply these technologies with, with equity and sustainability and fairness in mind. Um, and there's uh, a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's going to be trillions of dollars in this industry. It's going to be the next big uh, shift we need to make. So, you know, there's definitely going to be winners and losers and we need to be mindful of that. But, um, you know, I, what I always tell people is whether you believe in, in the warming or not, uh, the fact is we do need clean water and we do need clean food and we do need clean air. And so if nothing else, let's hone in there. As an environmentalist, I, I'm a big advocate of, of, sensible policies and sensible technologies mm -hmm. to, to be able to solve all of these critical need issues. However, where I do draw the line is just at the expense of uh, human suffering and things like that. So I, I definitely think it's important to, to, to balance out those concerns always. Agreed. Agreed. To make the conversation um, uh, a little bit more upbeat, let's say, um, I did hear in another episode you, you did with... Um, uh, uh, Rebel One on the, their podcast, um, you mentioned your passion for cities. And in that episode, I don't think um, you both had a discussion discussion around it. So I wanted to understand kind of, um, well, for one, I actually just in research, I wanted to maybe mention the SDG goal 11 and some of the statistics around it, um, just for a frame of reference. Um, half of humanity, 3.5 billion people live in cities today. And five five billion people are projected to live in cities by 2030. Um, also, cities account for 60 to 80 percent of energy consumption and generate as much as 70 percent of human-induced greenhouse gas emissions. That's a pretty wild number. Uh, by 2050, 70 percent of the world population is predicted to live in ur urban settlements. The question here is: What opportunities in New York and/or nationwide relate to climate tech and cities going forward, and which ones get you most excited? Oh, I love this question. Um, so many things get me excited, um, but when I when I think about you know New York State or even New York City, if I let's just do New York City right now, right? Uh, I can give the example of NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority. It's the largest housing authority for low income housing. Um, these properties were built in the 40s. I think it's like 150,000 units. The next largest is 50,000 units, just to put into context. Uh, because these, uh, this housing was federally funded, it has essentially dried up. And this amazing organization is working tirelessly to try to figure out how to put in the necessary upgrades for these low-income communities so that they can have um, you know, access to housing with a, a you know, basic human dignity and a strong quality of life, right? So these buildings are, are old. They're, they suffer from lots of lead. 
Um, you know, they, their heating doesn't work. So they're, they're freezing in the winter and they're hot, hot, hot in the summer. And if you've ever spent a summer or winter in New York, you know how extreme those two are. Um, you know, they, um, you know, may not have access to green areas. And, um, when you think about, um, you know, quality of life, like these, these communities deserve more and they, they're advocating organizing for more. Um, and, and I do believe that technology can help um, technology and impact funding can help to, to change for these communities. Like I dream and, and my, my, my aspiration is we, we get this program to the point that, you know, we're able to set up a way to rebuild all of the low income housing in New York city so that it becomes an energy positive, um, and clean space for, for this community to thrive. Um, and the book, the, the tipping point touches on why that's important to provide communities with clean, beautiful spaces. Um, it, you know, uh, crime was skyrocketing in New York for a while. And then they started to double down on, you know, making the spaces look beautiful. And weirdly enough, the psychology is right. Like people aren't going to destroy a space that is where they feel like they're being honored and respected. Right. So it creates a greater safety and better communities. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, by showing these communities the respect that they deserve and the housing that they should have, you know, livable, survivable, healthy, uh, housing they should have access to. Um, you know, we're not saying mansions for everybody. We're saying, you know, uh, they shouldn't be breathing in pollutants every day. Um, yeah, without a yeah. doubt. So that's, I, I, you know, I would love and, you know, my dream is to help somehow spur that that transformation for these communities in New York City. Let's talk about the market opportunities that are more so aligned with venture capital. What what are some things we should be thinking as venture capitalists that think, want to get into the climate tech city sort of um, city that we, I don't have a word for it. Uh, yeah, future city. <laughs> sustainable yeah, city. Sustainable city. Future cities. Um, I'm, I'm actually not going to edit this one out. <laughs> I don't care. I, I, I'm learning as I go here. Yeah, no. Um, well, good. I made you laugh. I forgot yeah. the question. It's one, uh, the main thing is just the market-based solutions for venture capitalists to look at opportunities that may be arising in kind of the sustainable cities, climate tech meets urban um, opportunities. Yeah. Um, you know, so funny. Uh, this article just came out um, in the MIT Technology Review that was like, how VCs can avoid another clean tech bloodbath, right? And Oh, it was yeah. basically like, oh, invest in climate software solutions and later stage startups. And I was like, well, that's really no different from any <laughs> other VC avoiding risk. Um, right. I'm like, that is not new to the climate space, but I thought it was funny. But I think, um, you know, I think people like Elon Musk are showing that there's, you know, sometimes life favors the bold. You know, I, when I think about the big in, intrinsic issues or systemic issues that we're dealing with in climate, it's it's buildings. So think about how many large buildings there are in New York that have to be heated, cooled, lights on, lights off, um, uh, running water, um, the, the transportation, the cars, um, you know, um, our energy grid systems, how they're connected. I think there's incredible opportunity, but I think we have to think through what do these, you know, these returns may not look the same, but the, 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 the value is, is still there. Um, and so it, I, I think one of the things that I'd, I'd caution any VC coming into this space is come into this space with, with, with patience and, and, and faith in, in what people can build, but, you know, it's not, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in five years, probably not even going to see a return in 10. 
Um, these companies need a lot of support and a lot of time to to make these transitions because they're overhauling entire communities, right? This isn't some you know quick widget you can plug in to to improve something. Um, these are things that are take time and intention um, and patient capital. Um, and so my my hope is to help build a community that can help uh, of investors that um, can become knowledgeable on the best opportunities within this space. Um, but that we also um, surround our founders with with venture capitalists who are not going to have unrealistic expectations for the timing of their progress. Yeah, I, I should probably speak to this one and offer a bit of a kind of a counterpoint to this. I, I think it's an excellent way you're framing it and discussing it, the mindset shift, et cetera. The only thing that I think would 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 probably, you know, in in certain circumstances, not necessarily align, would be just kind of the life cycle of mm -hmm. funds. They tend to be around 10, 12 years for venture capital funds. And the returns windows, usually they're investing over about three year, three to four year periods. And if you're early stage, you've got five to seven years to get to get a return on 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 those um, those investments. And I kind of wonder if, for example, um, with SPACs, for example, um, mm -hmm. in in the we're seeing a lot of, of those um, prior to IPO stage, seeing a lot of those, and also um, I think it was with uh, Carta X just yesterday um, is releasing like a hundred to two hundred million dollar exit sort of product for founders who want to exit early onto their exchange. That could be something interesting as well as also, um, gosh, there's that, uh, long-term stock exchange. I don't necessarily think it may align with, with, um, climate tech opportunities, but maybe this lower exit range, more like growth equity range could be sort of an avenue to, to allow for venture capitalists to invest without necessarily it being uh, thought of as like your billion dollar IPO, you know, nine year exit type of thing, something like that. Well, maybe this is even a better way of framing it when, you know, when you said venture capitalists, I was almost imagining like individuals investing, not so much with the fund, because to your point, the fund uh, mechanisms are not always aligned with what the space requires to actually succeed. Um, there are exceptions, right? Like, you know, again, I Tesla, <laughs> um, but talk about he's like, I'm going to build cars from scratch and vertically integrate everything. And people must have been like, that sounds impossible. And here he is having shifted an entire market and forced every other entrenched competitor to meet him, not the other way around. Um, and so I think at some point you, you do meet these exceptional entrepreneurs that can make these radical leaps for society. Um, but I think um, when I think of how venture capitalists can invest in this space, it's almost more... Not to say that they can't invest in a fund model. I definitely know plenty of, of funds in this space. But if if you're a first time investor in this space, um, you know maybe consider it either bringing somebody onto your fund that really understands the space, or um, investing personal dollars where that can be you can be more patient with. Um, but you know I will also say that. I see a lot. Um, I remember hearing a lot of investors when I was a founder tell me, oh, you know, Jackie, I try to do hardware and I found that I just really don't know how to support founders in the hardware space. And, you know, they're like, it just didn't work out for me. And so I don't think that I'm meant to help founders in this space. And I remember thinking like, okay, like, fine, do you. But it, um, I think that that's the wrong, like, if you're coming into the, if you want to be in this space, you're going to have to have a different attitude. And, and let me share an example of what like um, Brad Feld, Foundry Group, 
Um, you know, they had, my understanding is they had invested in a company that was very similar to Fitbit before Fitbit and it failed because the timing was wrong. Um, but that didn't mean that they looked at Fitbit and said, oh, you know, we tried this and it didn't work. They said, you know what, last time we tried this, the timing was off. Let's try it again. Um, and I'm like, that's why they are like, they get me just so excited. Cause I'm like, yes, like that's, you know, that's the kind of, uh, you know, Brad Feld always says, um, you know, you need to set your 20 year vision today, every day. And, and, um, they, you can't argue that they haven't had remarkable wins and yet also like really cool impact as a, as a fund. Um, and that's not even a climate tech, clean tech fund, <laughs> you know, that's just a, a very different kind of fund. And so, um, but we are seeing new types of venture funds, you know, whether it's breakthrough energy ventures or, or hybrid alternative financing, financial models. Um, we're seeing people get really creative because they're understanding that it has a different need. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited for the creativity. Um, I was at a conference once for Future Cities, Zeka, and what they actually said to me was there's no lack of innovation. There's a lack of innovative business models and people willing to fund them. And um, that was the first time I realized not all, you know, not all models fit all feet, right? So like um, you need to build models that will will help support the space until it doesn't need that support anymore. Um, and I don't think it will. Like uh, solar, right? Like, yeah, a lot of people went busted in, in the last clean tech uh, cycle, but solar is now the cheapest form of energy out there. <laughs> um and uh, people are building incredible companies around that. So I think it it, it just takes uh, a longer term view. And can you tell me more about the the um, approach that Nextcore is taking with with um, kind of getting these hard hardware based companies launched into market? Uh-huh. And and we do hardware and software. So we we do both in my program. Our sibling program does hardware specifically, and they help them get from prototype to mass production because um, it's an extreme technical leap, and and they help technical folks during that transition for their business. Um, but for us, uh, we actually provide non-dilutive capital because we're at a super early stage. Um, and we're trying to de-risk these businesses and help them build robust teams by creating a talent pipeline and helping support the hiring of, of talent onto these um, for these innovations and the innovators behind them um, to build robust teams and, and help them hit these next milestones so that they can be of more interest to, to traditional funders. So we're essentially trying to fill in a a gap. Um, and it's a gap that's actually expressed in that same article I referenced about like them saying, well, VCs want to avoid a bloodbath. They got to invest in software in later stage. But the biggest risk is if everybody does that, then who's going to fund the pipeline? Um, you need programs like ours, which is a combination of public and private, right? To, um, get these critical technologies off the ground and to the point that they can actually start to navigate these ecosystems. I think that's wonderful. And um, I guess you're using grants as kind of a tool for, for funding? Yes. For non-dilutive funding, we, we get funding in the form of, of grants. Um, we're hoping to be able to provide more kinds of capital down the road, but with our seed funder, um, that was the the path that we decided to go down because the ultimate mission and goal is to um, have this this impact and, and de-risk climate tech. Fantastic! I, I'm sure a lot of people are gonna just be <laughs> flocking to your to your your firm. Um, this is amazing. And um, so, do you do you also uh, collaborate or do you do you enter the market kind of 
post SBIR grants or um, National Science Foundation types of grants, or do you? Yeah, how does that work? We actually help. Uh, we we do both. We will do because it'll be our first year. Um, we're gonna do. We support our founders both with grant writers to support them in applying for grants. Um, some of them have probably already accessed grants on their own, but we help them with further grant funding. Um, but we also then do an investor boot camp and help support them through. Um, more traditional fundraising models because grant funding is amazing to a certain degree, but it often comes with limitations on how they can use that funding. Um, which and so they need a mix of of grants and and sort of impact funding with traditional funding so that they can do the business building activities they have to do. I just want to thank you. You you've been so um, helpful and. Um so passionate about, uh, you know, sustainable cities. I, I just, I'm so, so excited about all the references. I'm going to leave that in the, the show notes. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before, uh, before we, we roll on? Just uh, thank you for, for listening to, uh, to my story. Um, and I really hope that like me, you're a climate techie, a nerdy climate techie like me, and uh, would love to see many of you, um, you know, join our, our community and get involved. Um, it's 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 going to take the world's largest collaborative effort we've ever seen. And so I'm uh, uh, excited for the challenge and, and for the opportunities. So thank you. We've had amazing guests on the show, and I'm very grateful for all of your support. The show is now available also on Google. It's available on Amazon. It's available on pretty much all the platforms, iTunes, uh, hosting primarily on Breaker, so you can interact with the show there. We would love any positive feedback you can give on uh, iTunes, especially. Leave us a review and keep listening. Appreciate it.